and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. This is Morgan Davies, and I'm here with my co-host, Gabby Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we are discussing Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out, the horror film Us, starring Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, and Elizabeth Moss, which grossed a historically enormous $70 million this weekend. Nyong'o stars as Adelaide, whose family has returned to vacation near the beach where she underwent a traumatic experience as a child. When she and her family are confronted with malevolent doppelgangers at their vacation home, they must fight to escape and then survive. Uh, So as I said, this movie made a huge amount of money this weekend. It has been a big, big, big success. One of the biggest openers ever for um, a live action non-franchise property. And I did not like it. So this is my third week in a row of being a killjoy. I hate everything. Good stuff. Well, I I think like kind of the reaction to this is less like this movie made you or us feel bad and more like this film kind of swung for the fences. Like there is a lot of strange material like in this movie. It's much more kind of ambitious than Get Out, which is obviously like ambitious as in it's a really political movie that combines horror and comedy and was an independent horror drama and is a masterpiece and succeeded. Whereas this film is also a horror comedy, but it does some very strange things, which is why it's so cool that it was so commercially successful in the opening weekend. But also it basically falls apart, especially in the third act. Like there's lots of really interesting material to analyze, but the more you look into it, the less it makes sense. And there's so many ideas kind of being crammed into it that it really just didn't work for me, even though it wasn't like I wasn't enjoying the film, you know, because Jordan Peele knows how to be scary and knows how to be funny. And the actors are all really good. So you've got Lupita Nyong'o giving this amazing performance. And there's loads of really effective humour, especially in the first half. And then you're like, what the fuck was this movie was about? (laughs) And not because we're too dumb to understand, because I like to imagine we both have brains, but it was like, I'm sorry, the message in this was not efficiently articulated. (laughs) Yes. I think you were more forgiving than I was, although I didn't think it was like the worst thing I've ever seen at all. And I didn't hate watching it, but by the last third, I would say, I was pretty much done. I was just like, this is not good, and I do not need to be here any longer. The audience I saw it with, it was almost a sold-out screening, and the people in the crowd were really, really into the movie, which definitely always helps the experience. The crowd overall was much more enthusiastic than I was, and that was interesting because... I think it sort of heightened my enjoyment at certain parts. Like I was laughing harder at some jokes than I think I maybe would have because the rest of the audience liked it so much. And I thought it was funny. Like it's not that I didn't think it was funny, but like you're just kind of buoyed along by other people's enjoyment. And then there was stuff that people were sort of like screaming and clapping at later on that I wasn't reacting to very strongly. And then that was interesting to watch and be like, oh, like this is clearly hitting with, with people and I'm just like, mm, I no longer care. You I know? think that most movies that are as odd as this are not entertaining. Because like Suspiria yeah. is not like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna enjoy this on like a pure entertainment level because it's like incredibly pretentious. Whereas this film, it's pretentious, which I don't think is an inherently negative word, but like it is, it is there's a lot of kind of symbolism and like slightly half-baked political allegorical stuff. There is a lot going on, basically. At the same time, it functions 
as just a straightforward horror comedy and like we were talking about this last night but um the first two thirds are like a really just classic kind of setup and then horror so you've got like the introductory setup where you meet all the characters in the family and then the main middle section is straightforward horror with some jokes where you've got you know people attacking each other and what have you and then the final third is you know the explanation of what's happening but the more you find out about the setting, the more you're like, this doesn't make sense. And I know we're kind of talking around this, but that's because we know that a lot of our listeners do actually listen to this without watching the movie yet. So um, <laughs> kind of the first half of this podcast, we're going to remain relatively spoiler free. And then for the second half, we will go into spoilers and then we'll discuss the kind of twist ending right at the end. Yeah, it's very hard to talk about this movie without giving stuff away just by nature of the film. So yeah. we'll try I was, to... I was really glad not to have watched the trailer when I watched it. <laughs> yeah, the trailer definitely gave some stuff away, but I do think they did a pretty good job of not giving too much away. But it was interesting. I remember I watched the trailer and I thought, this is not a good trailer. But I was like, but, you know, it's probably just not cut very well. Then I was like, oh no, I was right. Like... <laughs> This trailer is just not very good because the movie is not that great. There's also so much stuff in this movie that is cool and really memorable, but doesn't go anywhere. So the posters are all immediately like really good branding because you've got these images of um, the characters kind of wearing these red jumpsuits and they've got one glove on and they're holding a pair of scissors. You look at that and you're like, this is definitely the poster for us. And then you watch the movie and the doppelgangers are all wearing these kind of uniforms where um, they're wearing a jumpsuit, they're wearing this one leather glove, they've all got scissors. The costumes are by Kim Barrett, by the way, who's one of my favourite costume designers. She did The Matrix and she's a genius. But it's just completely unclear why this is happening. So it's one of these things where you've got like the style, but the substance isn't there. And the fact that they have scissors for like a solid half of the movie, I was like, oh, this is a Peter Pan thing where because the doppelgangers kind of describe themselves as the shadows of their normal human selves, they're going to use the scissors to cut themselves apart, which seems like the obvious choice. You're going to sever yourself from the thing that's tethering to get them together. No, they're just like really straightforward murder implements. It's not clear where they got the scissors from or like where the jumpsuits are from or where the gloves are from or why they've chosen this uniform so it's kind of, it just doesn't work. And then also there's this rabbit motif all the way through. So it starts off with this shot of rabbits and then rabbits kind of continue in later elements of the film. And the main character had a toy rabbit as a child and the rabbits are not relevant to the story in any way. And after watching the movie, I looked up an interview with Jordan Peele and I was like, there's got to be something behind this. And he was like, well, rabbits and scissors are frightening. <laughs> and so like possibly right because like I know that Jordan Peele is smarter than me so I'm like maybe there's something that I just didn't get which I mean obviously it means the film failed if I literally just don't even get what that is but um maybe he just didn't want to explain that so early because the film's only just come out and you don't want to have like major spoilers in your pre-release interviews but it seems dumb to just have an interview where you're like well scissors and rabbits are frightening so I put them in the film in like a really key part of the story <laughs> Also, like, rabbits are not scary, in my well, I think opinion. They're, they're not, I think they're scary to him specifically. But, like, right. I was there, like, first of all, I was like, the rabbits are kind of to do with, like, an Alice in Wonderland thing because there was a thing with a hall of mirrors and a young girl going through a hall of mirrors. And also there's kind of a laboratory aspect. So maybe they're lab rabbits. But they're just kind of there. So it's the, the thing that kind of made it just, like, not work for me even though I did kind of have an interesting experience, like I like thinking about this film, is that 
So tonally, the movie is just a really easily digestible horror comedy where all of the comedy and the sort of straightforward horror elements like jump scares and violence work, right? Like they're just what you'd hope to see in this kind of film. But the world building is really elaborate and only works on nightmare logic. It's not kind of something you can explain in a way that makes sense. So it's like David Lynch. But the difference between this and a Lynch film is that stylistically his work is really weird. Like it's very kind of surreal and um, visually like it doesn't look like the real world and the way that people behave doesn't make sense. Whereas the way that the main characters in this behave is exactly how like this family of characters would react to those circumstances. So you've got like normal everyday horror comedy tone, really weird world building. And then also you're meant to be picking up on this allegorical political stuff at the same time, which they then explain like really explicitly in some scenes and then don't explain at all. And if you're a regular listen to, listener to this podcast, you know that I love that horror movies don't explain stuff very much. I love that Hereditary didn't go too deep into the explanations. And that's one of my favourite elements of horror films. There's far more kind of leeway to just go into supernatural inexplicableness. But with this film, they had Lupita Nyong'o do several monologues where she is explaining what's happening in the film. A lot of the time when that explanation wasn't fully necessary. And then you reach the end and you're like, well, you've explained part of this, but now there's like so much more. And it's kind of like the uncanny valley where like the closer you get to explaining the more, it's like, I don't fucking understand. <laughs> well, and some of the explanations that we can't actually talk about without spoiling it, we will get to at the end, literally do not make any sense. Yeah, they make it, they make it less coherent. Right. And because they're offering such a literal explanation of events, they are then required to provide explanations that make sense, right? So if you are just doing a dream logic thing, you can have things that are just crazy and weird and don't really tie into reality, right? But if you are of your own volition, offering the audience a literal explanation for a weird thing that is happening, and that literal explanation is completely nonsensical and implausible, it's an own goal, right? Like, why bother? It really made no sense to me. I was very perplexed by why that would happen. And like, obviously, the conceit of Get Out, he does provide you with a literal explanation for what these people are doing, but it's quite simple. And obviously, in that case, the allegory is like that movie isn't simple, but the allegory is pretty straightforward to understand, right? And the actual act that the white people are committing in the film is not complicated at all. And so it's, again, I, the movie itself isn't simple, but you can watch it and be like, oh, I get the what he's trying to Well, it's very self-contained right? and yes. tightly written, which is like the writing is like amazing in that film. Yeah. Um, and something that if you kind of familiar with Jordan Peele's work, he's extremely detail-oriented, which is also true of this film, but kind of the difference between Get Out and Us is with Get Out, it's kind of like watching an Edgar Wright movie, like one of the good Edgar Wright movies, um, not Baby Driver, which I hate, but um, where there is so much kind of uh, sort of foreshadowing and sort of little details that are fed in earlier, which mean that um, when you rewatch, then you pick up on it like a lot and it kind of just all feeds into how great the denouement is at the end. And with Get Out, it was like there was loads of just like stuff like the the way um, the characters who've been like had their bodies possessed or swapped kind of behave earlier on works really well just to make the scenario really unsettling when you're watching it the first time. And then you look back on it once you find out what's actually happening. And you're like, oh, fuck. 
Um, and, you know, more subtle stuff than that as well, you know. Whereas with this film, there was lots of stuff which was clearly, like, very intentional and detailed. Like, there's this kind of, as well as the rabbits and the scissors and what have you, there's this kind of ongoing 11-11 motif, which is just this sort of urban legend thing to do with coincidences, which I think probably most people will be familiar with. But they have all these recurring 11-11s. And, like, in the it's first shot... It's also a Bible verse. Yeah, it's also a Bible verse. Like, it's a Bible verse that's relevant like to the story and they have it kind of quoted or referenced on screen quite early on but like even in the first scene where you see the rabbits like it's 11 rows of rabbits and that sort of thing but like that detail doesn't really go anywhere it's just like it is there and kind of in the introductory scene with Lupita Nyong'o's character as a child like she's there in 1986 and you see all these VHS tapes which I found out afterwards like they're all references to movies that are really important to Jordan Peele and kind of fed into this film as influences but you could say that of like a lot of films right now because everyone's like obsessed with 80s pop culture so it's like in Stranger Things where some people only enjoy Stranger Things because they're like oh it's this really great reference to it and I'm like I don't know what any of these references are and it works for me as a drama whereas with this I'm sort of like there's a lot of references and kind of pieces of visual symbolism where I'm like that's cool but it hasn't fully kind of tied up and it doesn't fit together neatly in the way that Get Out did. I saw someone kind of make this analogy somewhere and I apologize for not remembering where that the movie kind of falls prey to like Reddit syndrome in the sense that so much of it has been designed to be figured out by people later. And I do not find that to be satisfying as a viewing experience. Like it's fine to have some, like I love to analyze movies, obviously. And it's fine to have some things that are like, Oh, that's the the visual reference to the thing later or whatever. But when your whole movie is kind of designed as a puzzle box in that way, I think I personally do not find that enjoyable. And I think it feels to me as though Jordan Peele kind of just got like lost in the weeds of that while making this. Like there were, there were so many things that he kind of was like, I could put that in and I could put that in and I could put that in. And then this was the explanation of this and that's an explanation of that. And this is the cool reference. And the end result is, this movie that does have these elements of humor and horror that obviously people watching it are going to enjoy as they very clearly did in my screening. But when you try to actually understand the movie in a coherent way, it's all gotten bogged down by this other stuff, which is unfortunate because obviously he's very talented and can do it in a better way. But we all mess up sometimes. So. I mean, I think a really good example of that is the the fact the Hands Across America charity is a key element of this film, which we can discuss a little bit more in the spoiler section. But um, basically, in the first scene where Lupita Nyong'o was a child, it's set in 1986, and Hands Across America is kind of something that she's aware of kind of in the culture. And it's this charity event which took place where people joined hands in a long chain across America to make a statement about ending poverty and I obviously like anyone who wasn't around then is probably not aware of this so like everyone is going and googling that afterwards so it is absolutely a reddit syndrome thing where so there's all these like SEO articles which is search engine optimization for those people who don't have my job but basically when a movie like this comes out everyone who works at a news site has to go and write like a search engine optimized thing for everyone who's googling what is hands against hands across America so there's all these explainers for it and it was basically like one of these sort of attention seeking live aid charity things which didn't actually help very much but did attract a lot of attention 
And it is relevant to the story. And it's like, it's actually got a really interesting role, I think, in kind of Lupita Nyong'o's character arc in the film. But um, one way in which it kind of tripped me up is this is a petty quibble, but I kept getting stuck in it because Lupita Nyong'o's character has to be, I would estimate, eight years old in 1986, which means that she is around 40 in the present day of the movie. She is between 39 and 42, I would say. Lupita Nyong'o is in real life 35 and she looks like 30. She is famously a very youthful looking woman. So all the way through the film, I'm like, I know intellectually that this woman is meant to have a teenage daughter and that she and Elizabeth Moss, like Elizabeth Moss has slightly older teenage daughters, but they're also meant to be this really like wealthy, like upper middle class family where they had kids really young, which is not normal for millennial families. So it's like, it's all just kind of feels like slightly off. And it felt to me like Jordan Peele was so keen to include all this imagery of Hands Across America, which is such a key theme of the film, that he just had to keep that in, even though it doesn't, it just kind of trips up slightly in the fact that Lupita Nyong'o is the protagonist. Because like, if they'd said it in 2013, then she would have been a more appropriate age and it would have made sense. But it also would have made it a bit weird to make a film in tw- set in 2013. So it's like these kind of weird confluence of things. And that's not like actually like a major problem, but because I was just like, what the fuck age is she meant to be? I was just like... <laughs> well, I think it kind of speaks to the bigger issues with the movie, though, that we've been talking about. And um, I had the same thought. And then I kind of forgot about the date thing at the beginning. Although then when you reminded me of it, I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. But I kept thinking Yeah, I was really fixating time... on it because I always calculate characters' ages in my head. <laughs> Well, I was thinking the whole time about the age of the kids because Elizabeth Moss um, is 37 in real life, which I had to look up after, but obviously I have a general idea of how old she is. And her twin daughters are like 15 in this movie. Yeah, um, they are uh, 17 in real life, I believe. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they could easily be 17. They clearly look around 15 to 17, right? And I was like, what? (laughs) And... And then the daughter, um, Lupita Nyong'o's daughter, looks also around 14, 15, I would say. Yeah, like early and, teens. Yeah. And families that are that affluent in this sort of day and age tend to have kids later. People in general tend to have kids later. And part of the point of the movie, a large part of the point that he's clearly attempting to make that I don't think he really succeeds in making, is about class in America. Yeah. Because the point is that they are, it's meant to be like this upper class, upper middle class existence where they've got this like amazing house, they've got this very prosperous lifestyle, they're, it's set in their vacation home. So the kind of the, the dad character, who is, by the way, a delight, all of the family scenes are really good. The dad is so funny. Um, but it's like, he's like got this like boat he's just bought and he's like, they, they have enough money, they can like go and buy a boat at random sort of thing, which is like the setting that we're in. Yeah, I mean, it's beyond upper middle class. They're yeah. rich. And yeah, the rich. white family is really rich. I guess I'm thinking I'm thinking of like British upper middle class then. They're, yeah. they're rich. <laughs> yeah. um, and so if this is part of what he's trying to do with this movie, to have these kids this old, it's clearly because he wants to have teenagers in the film. Yeah. It's just, again, it's like he's shoehorning these various things in that don't actually make sense because he wants to have them all in the movie. And as a writer, I completely understand that temptation. But... Like he's just sort of shooting himself in the foot a little bit. And the other thing, there were just, there were so many little inconsistencies that individually you kind of are tempted to like gloss over. And if you're watching this movie just as a sort of pure entertainment, it's easier to do that. But because the movie- I mean, the film invites analysis, right? Right, exactly. And because I don't think it ultimately succeeds, then 
I wind up then going back and nitpicking more and it all sort of crumbles apart a little bit. They're in this vacation home that they own. Like their family photos are in this house, right? Like it is their house. And it's right by this beach where she's had this traumatic experience. And Winston Duke is like, we're going to go to the beach. And she's like, we can't go to that beach because she's never been back there clearly since she was a child and had this traumatic experience. But it's their vacation house. So presumably they go there all the time, but they've never been back to this beach with their kids. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what is going on? It doesn't make any sense. I hadn't really considered that, but I guess like they said that they haven't gone home since grandma died. Like they haven't been back since grandma died. So I guess grandma, because she knew about Lupita's traumatic experience, had like never gone. She right. like made sure they never go back to the beach. But it's just Yeah, like, I, I don't know. But so that's the kind of thing in this movie, along with sort of the stuff about like the scissors that aren't explained or et cetera that we've already discussed, that I just think it it just seems like someone who's kind of in love with their own material so much. Yeah. But also, and also there's like such a big contrast between like the analytical experience and the viewing experience because the casting is so good and the jokes all are so good and most of the jump scares really land. It's like the viewing experience for me was like, apart from by the time we got to the end and I was like, my brain was like, what the fuck are you doing? Clearly like everyone involved is more talented and thoughtful than the majority of like mainstream horror movies that I watch. But then also because this movie really wants you to think deeply about everything, the deeper you think, the more you're like, no. <laughs> I would say I did not hate watching this movie. I definitely enjoy watching it less than you do. You did. I think I thought it was paced very slowly. For the, the pacing was really off. I think that was the first thing I messaged you after I came out of the cinema because yeah. there were so many points where it kind of would suddenly kind of slow down. Yeah. Or they'd introduce uh, kind of an expository speech, which would also right. like slow down the larger scale and like there was this point in the middle where like once they've gone through the main sort of home invasion story the family just sort of sits down and they have this conversation for like a solid five minutes and it was just so strange to someone to think of like a filmmaker who is so incredibly familiar as an expert in american mainstream horror movies to have a film that is so strangely paced when it mostly is like very reliant and knowledgeable of how this type of film is paced, like it, how it should yeah. work. <laughs> and I think because it was paced so weirdly and because the interactions with the doppelganger family, I actually found very bizarre beyond like the pure straight horror stuff, which is pretty straightforward. But, like when they're talking to them and just like the whole structure of that, which we'll get into in the spoiler section, I just found really weird. I just found this whole structure of the movie really peculiar. And then we were talking about it and you were like, no, it's really straightforward. There's the first third where they're setting up the second third, it's home invasion. And then the last third where they're trying to explain it, it doesn't make any sense, which is totally correct. But because the pacing is so off and they have these sort of breaks, it then kind of threw me off. Cause I was like, what is happening in this movie? Like, what is he trying to do? And so I think that threw me out of it a little bit as I was watching. Cause I was just like, what? The parts that I found the most engaging by far was when he was kind of telling the story from the point of view of the two children, who I found really, really compelling, who are played by Shahadi Wright-Joseph and Evan Alex. I think are I think they were great. I thought they gave great performances. And I think maybe it's just that I just, you know, don't have children. I think there's something elemental about watching a movie like this when you have children like that, where you're kind of 
like seeing from their point of view in a way and really invested in them. Like there's something kind of, you feel childlike in a way watching a film where there's this much sort of scary stuff, I think. And there's a scene where they go into the white family's house and are kind of doing stuff that I thought was the best scene in the movie. And it mostly involves the children. And my audience was totally like losing their minds during that scene. <laughs> it was really, really fun. Well, it was like the most classic horror scene in yes. the whole movie, right? Exactly. And like part of the film is, is just the fact that like there are so few horror movies with black protagonists, especially ones that are just like mainstream entertainment horror films. And kind of the the contrast between like the black and the white family is like the main family actually have good relationships and decent survival skills and then the white family are like this parody of dysfunctional suburban people being horrible to each other (laughs) yes (laughs) i thought the white family should have been in the movie more because as you say clearly they're drawing this contrast between them and it's not like you don't get a good sense of who these people are but it felt odd that you only had a couple of scenes with them. It, it just... No, I, th- I felt like it was enough. Because, like, you do get, like, a really clear idea of them. And because they're slightly more just joke characters, I thought it worked. I just felt, again, like, structurally, they weren't taking advantage of the potential of doing more with that. Partic- I think a lot of it's just that if you cast Elizabeth Moss, it feels very odd to have <laughs> yeah, her Yeah, Morgan in, like, just wants scenes. to see more Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, like she in the in the like two scenes that she's in, she's really good. And so then I at least thought there was going to be more going into the dynamic between the, the families. And if the rest of the movie had been better, perhaps I would not have wanted more of that. But it wasn't. So, <laughs> but uh, is there anything else we want to say? say before we get into yeah I, I think before we enter the spoiler zone basically like one of the kind of what i was thinking about this after watching the film last night even though my opinions on this film are very mixed as you can tell i'm really glad how successful it is commercially because i was kind of i kept thinking how cool it would be for this to be a widely discussed film as a teenager because i think like all of us have some cult movie that we were really into as a teenager and a lot of the time that movie might be some masterpiece or it might be something weird and shitty that you just get obsessed with and overanalyze. And the fact that this film is the number one movie in America over the weekend, like it's this huge box office hit because Jordan Peele's brand is so strong, partly. First of all, loads of teenagers are going to be having amazing analytical conversations about a weird movie with a ton of highly ambiguous symbolism, which is great. And I realize that sounds condescending, but it's true. Like it's just because there's so many movies that like most people are talking about are just like Marvel movies. The the kind of range of films that are easily accessible is actually narrower no matter what people are talking about with Netflix. So I love that. And also there were just like so many of the weird details, even though they don't work kind of thematically. <laughs> I was just like imagining so many kids just doing impressions of like Lupita Nyong'o's weird, creepy, terrifying doppelganger voice <laughs> and like the costumes you're going to get with the scissors. And I was like, you know what? It works on that level very well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely happy it's making this much money. Anytime you get a non-franchise movie that does this well, especially starring Black actors, it's a, it's a win for America and for Hollywood. Congratulations to Jordan Peele. 
I look forward to. I mean, I saw movies. I saw a list of like the in the past two years or something. There was only been like eight movies that won a box office weekend that weren't a sequel or a franchise, which is yeah. grim. But several of them were just some dumb movie starring The Rock kind of thing, like a stupid sort of mainstream broad comedy action film. But like several of them were horror, so it was stuff like Get Out and A Quiet Place were like the top two or something apart from this. And it was like, people actually really love high concept horror. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> it was it was like those two and then this and like some rock stuff and like Dunkirk was like the one outlier, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like something else. It's like, yeah, Christopher Nolan and his massive Warner Brothers marketing suite. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did not like this movie, but I'm not angry about its existence, obviously. Um, yeah. And also, I can't really discuss this for a few days because of the embargo, but I have actually seen previews of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone, and it is like one of the best TV shows I've seen in years. So yeah. <laughs> even if this one didn't win me, that one did. <laughs> yeah. So moving into spoiler territory... I mean, this is just a fucking crazy movie. (laughs) So first of all, the first shot of this film is a bunch of stuff about how America has loads of tunnels underground. And so you're like, okay, the doppelgangers all live in the tunnels. And then towards the end of the film, you're like, you figure out not only are there doppelgangers of Lupita Nyong'o's family, there's also doppelgangers of many families, enough for them to stretch all the way across America in a hands-across-America chain. However... The fact that there are tunnels under the whole of the US is not, I would say, visited. <laughs> we no. do get some scenes where we see the civilization of doppelgangers. And Lupita Nyong'o explains to us that an indeterminate number of years ago, some experiments created a thing. They made sort of separated but tethered copies where it's like they don't seem to have full consciousness And they're kind of mirroring all of the main people's lives. So we see like flashbacks where Lupita Nyong'o's double as a child is kind of copying all of her actions inside this tunnel underground, as are everyone else. So they're kind of behaving like zombies. They're very unsettling and creepily choreographed. And it it really works as horror. But the more they explain, the more you're like, so they have to copy all of their actions, but they're in this really beautifully designed sort of laboratory corridor, but they're long forgotten by their creators, so they're just continuing as this civilization, but they don't have any kind of autonomy until Lupita Nyong'o's doppelganger organizes them into an uprising that wants to get public attention by doing a Hands Across America protest and killing their doubles. <laughs> and and because, like I said, because like all of that is very much in the David Lynch zone. Like, the fact that there is, like, this whole tunnel system full of doppelgangers only works if the rest of the story is, like, visually and kind of tonally much more surreal than it is. Because it is literally like, oh, you just go downstairs and you find this doppelganger civilization. And I'm like, so they're just eating raw rabbit? Like, what's happening here? And also there's kind of this internal mythology that's illustrated a bit more subtly, which is that um, it seems like either doppelgangers can't or have a big taboo against killing anyone else. There's scenes where like Elizabeth Moss's doppelganger kidnaps Lupita Nyong'o but can't kill her so you can only kill your own doppelganger. But something Morgan picked up on that I wasn't really paying attention to is that like 
the boy has the ability to just kind of make his doppelganger mirror him and do what he wants, but the others don't. So maybe that's just because he's a kid and he has less power, but it's like not, it's not, it's not coherent. (laughs) Yeah, the rules make no sense. Yeah, it's creepy, but the internal logic is so elaborate. And also, it's like, we have all these doppelgangers, they live underground, and you see... Like, the place beneath this um, amusement park where Lupita's character, like, meets her doppelganger, and that's the big trauma that she experienced as a child. And it's like, all the people in the amusement park are all under the amusement park. That's where their doppelgangers are. And it's like, that. how does this work? Like, do yeah, they like, just, logistically. Like, <laughs> what? Which, again, if it's all dream logic, sure. But it's presented, this is what I was, you know, referring to earlier it's presented as like an actual logical concrete thing like that just doesn't yeah it what are they eating what how well, are they're they, eating what? raw rabbits but the rabbits <laughs> are not the ecosystem down there is just very puzzling i mean there's also kind of the the allegorical aspect because like especially if you could have seen like key and peel as well as get out the kind of politics are smart and clear right like you can get what's going on get out you can get on several different levels but like it's all very tightly put together you know and this is definitely like it's intentionally meant to be more ambiguous I think like I think he really wanted to move away from the idea of doing a really explicitly political movie especially an explicitly political movie about race so this is a film where you've got this this story that's like meant to work as just a straightforward horror comedy and also has this kind of subtext right but the subtext is so open to interpretation that it barely works. Like, I'm sure it will work for some people, but I was just like, what? Because I think, like, the easiest way to read this is that all of the doppelgangers are literally an underclass where the reason why Lupita and Elizabeth's families are so prosperous is because, like, they're ignoring the pain and torment of the underclass that are hidden, right? Which is kind of, like, a fairly obvious theme and also the fact that it's about such wealthy families is like an intentional creative choice, right? But also it's sort of like, well, the underclass are this oppressed society, but like, do they or do they not have agency? And also, are they just evil? Because it's like, yes, right. you always sympathize with people who are rebelling against the oppressors, but also they are really evil. <laughs> like, they're really just super murdery. And especially the kids, like... The daughter is just this absolute homicidal maniac. <laughs> so so it's like, I, yeah. Well, and if you sort of move away just from the political allegory, but these things are, are connected to each other. You know, he said in interviews, obviously this is not the first horror movie to deal with the doppelganger trope at all. Like he's drawing on all this, this precedent. I do love a doppelganger. Right. But inherent in that idea is a ton of like Freudian psychological stuff like the uncanny which you referenced earlier is going on here and there's so much potential for very Lynchian weirdness with with seeing yourself and being really unsettled by this and I was quite surprised by by the scene where they finally meet each other right because like at the beginning the initial part of the home invasion where the doppelganger family first shows up is so funny and so scary because it's like there's this family outside the house and Winston's Duke's character who is like 
probably my favorite characterization in the movie has this like amazing thing where he's like I'm sure it's fine he's sort of like dopely going out to like kind of chase him away and then he tries to like be more of a hard ass to actually be scary and goes out with a baseball bat but he is just like a dorky lovable dad joke dad so he's not actually that scary right and then when they finally come in the point where they all meet each other is one of the points where the pacing starts to go off and it's also partly like even though part of the joke of Winston Duke's character is that he's kind of dopey compared to Lupita Nyong'o, who's like much more savvy, it's it's like he literally doesn't even recognise that his doppelganger is his doppelganger, but the fact that he's in denial isn't really like explicitly addressed. So it feels like there ought to be more kind of punch to the point where people literally meet their own double and they're not freaking out and then they kind of pause for this long extended speech sequence. Right, and I mean, meeting your own double is considered like one of the most potentially like existentially terrifying things that can happen to you right if you're not a twin obviously which is a different different thing and there are plenty of horror movies about that too but they again he literally is just like what's going on and then they don't really engage with this and the fact that Lupita's double is the only one who can speak and she speaks in this kind of weird voice really takes away a lot of the potential fear from the encounter, I think, because if they could all talk, then you can have these unsettling conversations. But they all really are like this animalistic thing. You right, know? exactly. And so a lot of the potential for being unsettled by another version of yourself, they don't actually exploit that at all. And they don't really go into the, like the fact that they look like each other doesn't play into what actually happens in the film almost at all after the initial like they're us oh my god thing when they show up it's very strange i found it very very weird actually because if you're gonna do that it would strike me that you would go down a number of sort of predictable paths but predictable in a positive way like there's so much yeah like characters being mistaken for their own doppelganger right kind of thing. And then at the end, when Lupita kind of follows her doppelganger into this underground space where all the tethered people have been living, this is the only time when like the tunnels thing from the beginning comes back. It's just nonsense. It's clearly sort of meant to be allegorizing both like the underclass, but also the unconscious, right? Like she's going down into this space where... They've shown earlier the sort of other versions of these people doing their actions unconsciously, right? But nothing is really made of that either. And so he's he's sort of doing this stuff, but not really doing it. And I was just really perplexed. I didn't understand. I mean, understand. the final confrontation between Lupita and her doppelganger were great because they kind of staged it as a dance because she was a dancer as a teenager. And I was like, this is a very cool scene. But the fact that it was like sandwiched between scenes that didn't really have an adequate explanation and it was in the middle of this kind of hands across America scenario where all of the doppelgangers are forming this chain. I think that was like maybe the one of the few parts of the overall mythology that really worked for me because I really liked the idea of like a child seeing this and it being kind of this formative image from your childhood and seeing as this is like this is how people protest and make a statement politically is by jarring your hands across America because it's it's like literally a simplistic idea that is aimed at like the child brain 
And then she's like, that's how I'm going to do it. But also like with no kind of further understanding of the complexities and the fact that also like she's trying to execute this by like murdering a bunch of people. But like, (laughs) then you just have all of the logistics of like, well, now they've done the hands across America. What? (laughs) And also they have this big confrontation underground, but it's after the Lupita doppelganger has given this endless monologue explaining the whole thing that just goes on and on and on and she's explaining the like nonsensical explanation of the movie and it is not great like it just goes on for too long and so again in terms of pacing it's just like grinding the thing to a halt. I mean it's it's such a difficult thing to do right because like I was saying to Morgan earlier that um in the past few months I've seen two other indie horror movies which had like a similar kind of structure so it's like the first two acts are much more conventional horror and they ramp up the tension really efficiently and then the final act is sort of about expanding the worldview into something that's much more elaborate and that's like really difficult to carry off because most good horror movies they succeed because they are in this sort of claustrophobic self-contained space and in order to expand outwards you really have to like have a very coherent mythos which this didn't but like, unfortunately, I can't say what either of those movies are because the fact that they have like a really massive expansion of the world building in the final act is just a huge spoiler. So if anyone <laughs> wants to know that, they could just message us and I'll tell you. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. The thing that everyone keeps praising the most about this movie is Lupita Nyong'o's performance. And I actually thought, I thought she was good in it. I mean, she's one of our greatest actors. But I didn't think she was as amazing as everyone has been saying. And I don't think that's a... I'm not saying that to slight her at all, but I just thought that the role didn't was so bizarre and sort of didn't give her enough to do that I didn't find the performance as compelling as I think a lot of other people did. And I was thinking about other performances where actors play two characters, which I think always gets everyone very excited because Like, when you see that same person play two characters, it's just inherently like, wow, that's so impressive. Sam Rockwell in Moon, for instance, is such a great example of an actor in a movie playing the same person, but in two different ways, in such a complex way, because the characters are actually written as two, like, fully realized people. And that's a very different movie. It's a character study. It's got sort of, like, horrific elements, but it's not a horror film. And in this the doppelganger character is so not a character to me that like she's doing a funny voice and she definitely is scary, but I just wasn't as compelled by it as I was expecting to be, which I thought was too bad because obviously, again, she is one of like the best actors working and I'm so glad she got a lead role in something where you actually see her real face and not an animated version of her. But again, it's just sort of plays into my general feeling about this film was that there were just a lot of missed opportunities which it happens. Yeah. I mean, I thought she was amazing, but also like in terms of the thing with the doppelganger half being kind of harder to sort of get into. I mean, we're now going to talk about the final spoilers at the end. Um, yeah. But I think it's like, it's this, it's what he was talking about with the fact that Get Out has this thing where, you know, everything is building so much information that you can then appreciate the second time round or appreciate looking back, right? Because that's kind of, it felt like that was what this film was aiming for, where the kind of the reveal at the end is actually that Lupita is her own doppelganger, which I think you can also, like, I think it's definitely possible to even just watch the film 
from that initial starting point and think that because the the first scene is her kind of as a kid meeting her own doppelganger and you can definitely like watch the film and just assume that they've always have have swapped and that explains why Lupita's doppelganger is the only one who can talk and the fact that the main character like Adelaide the mother who you've been seeing all the way through flashbacks to her childhood it's like her parents are like oh she's forgotten how to talk as a child and she has to learn again so it explains why it ha- it wasn't that she'd forgotten how to talk it was like she literally had to learn again so the two halves of her spirit have like a much closer and different relationship to everyone else like all of the other doppelgangers really are shadows they can't talk they have virtually no agency without having Lupita's doppelganger who isn't actually a doppelganger kind of leading them but that also like really confuses the political stuff because it makes it seem like oh you have to have like a normal human come down and like lead the revolution for that to work but also do the others even want to escape because they don't even seem to have agency or thoughts that much without her directing them about what to do but then also like in terms of that being a horror reveal the one of the final shots or maybe even the final shot in the movie is the son essentially has figured out that his mother had been a doppelganger all along and had swapped and the kind of the final shot is like Lupita smiling at him like oh yes you know now which is like really menacing but like in the context of literally the whole of the rest of the film Lupita is actually like a wonderful mother who loves her children and is like just a completely normal and good person and is really sympathetic and there's like no sign that she's oh she was like a secretly a psychopath all along kind of thing even if she was doppelganger as a child she has grown up into like a normal functional happy adult and it's also when i was talking to my friends coming out of the movie half of us thought she could remember her doppelganger childhood and the other half couldn't because you can't tell <laughs> you literally can't tell if she can remember her childhood as a doppelganger or not for like the rest of her adult life i mean i think the movie just doesn't support it I think it makes sense in terms of um, the fact that she's the only one who's able to speak. Like, yeah. when the reveal happened, I was like, oh, right, that of course. But in terms of the non-doppelganger, who actually is a doppelganger character, like the mom Lupita character, I think everything you see about her in the movie, all of her behavior, everything, it just doesn't support the twist in any kind of reasonable way. And obviously, I've only seen the movie one time. Maybe if I saw it again, I would think differently. But... I think when you have a twist like that, you need to actually have the back up material to make it work. And it felt like they just were like, we're going to have a cool twist. Ha ha ha. And like, it doesn't work to me. And I said this to you yesterday, but the thing it reminded me of, and I think that this is a much less egregious example of this kind of thing. But um, I remember feeling similarly in a more just kind of like, oh, that was silly way was the end of Inception where you just have like the top spinning and it doesn't fall over, which so like, was the whole thing really a dream? But I have seen Inception many times, and it doesn't actually support the like, it was really a dream theory. Like there are a few things in the movie that's seem like oh this could be a dream but if you actually trace the entire plot it doesn't add up like it doesn't work but it just and i'm also very much of the who cares brigade because who cares oh right it doesn't (laughs) like this is not i have not like it doesn't matter um but it's like a thing that gets tacked on to the end of the movie to be like "Uh and like the audience screams and like whatever and in that case inception is just like a dumb film it's fine right but it is the same kind of thing where like it feels like it's sort of pandering in a way that it's like, you know, come on. And in this case, it was more egregious to me because it feels like it's turning the whole movie around 
and the political stuff, as you say, it's like, well, if you're trying to make an allegorical point here, what? No, I don't think so. Yeah, it was a noble effort. I mean, as you said at the top, he really swung for the fences. I look forward to his next movie, which I believe is a remake of Candyman. Great. Fantastic. I will be there on opening day. I mean, this didn't, like, change my view of him in any way, right? Like, it's fine. It happens to the best of us, you know? It is what it is. The good old sophomore slump. Yep. Um, I'm really looking forward to The Twilight Zone. So. Yeah, after I watched The Twilight Zone a few hours later, I was like, I feel I feel really weird. What's happening? And I realized that every muscle in my body had been clenched so hard. <laughs> I'd get myself <laughs> like a stress response. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm excited. Should be good. So we'll be discussing that at some point in the future, I'm sure. Um, in the meantime, uh, next week, we will be discussing... The big film. The big yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. We have already recorded a commentary track, which will be up on Patreon shortly. If you're on like the $3 level, yeah. then you will be able to watch Captain America, The Winter Soldier with us doing audio commentary for all two hours and 15 minutes. Yep. Uh, it was very fun. And um, we're very excited to be talking about it in full episode form. It was... Uh, our, our obsession for a long time, five years ago. This is the five-year anniversary of that movie. We are old. We're experts. <laughs> yep. So yeah, it should be great. Uh, thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. And we are also on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. Thanks again. See you next week. Bye.